Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So, what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hi, everyone. I'm Kitty Couric, and this is Next Question. I love when the people we've gotten to know over the years on the big and small screen come out with a memoir. And I'm not just saying that because I did the same last year, going there now available in paperback. No, I'm talking about people we feel like we know, but don't really know, you know? Like the actor and activist, Gina Davis. Gina is someone I have interviewed over the years and admired both in her diverse movie roles and for the incredible activists and leadership she's taken on, fighting for gender equity in Hollywood. But Gina is one of those clever stars that hasn't revealed all that much of herself. Until now. I never have been in this position of having written something and people are going to read about me and, you know, did I say too much or something? Let's talk about the title of Dying of Politeness because you tell a story in the book which kind of in a weird way set you out on this path of kind of, I guess, squashing your emotions in some ways. Tell that story. You were just, what, three years old and you were in church? Oh, yeah, no, I was a baby. Um, uh, And I don't personally remember it, but I was told about it relentlessly. Uh, I was sitting in my mom's lap in church and I was a baby and uh, uh, obviously able to sit up at this point. And I was moving around, of course, like babies will. And somehow or other, I lurched forward and I clocked my head on the pew in front. (laughs) And it made a huge crack and the minister stopped speaking and everybody paused to see, you know, is bloody murder going to be screamed now? And uh, and my mom said she loved to tell this story. My mom said she she clutched me and said, and she didn't say a peep. And that was the proudest thing she could think of. I'd love to tell about that. And uh it was only late, and I heard it so many times, but I only later that I started to realize, is that a good thing? I mean, uh, you know, I was able to know that I had to not show my feelings, my real feelings, at a, at a very, very early age. You know, that don't don't be troubled to anybody. Don't make a noise. You were basically being praised for repressing your emotions, even if that meant pain. And I'm wondering how that manifested itself in your life from that moment on. In other words, you know, 
kids should be seen and not heard, and especially for girls to be um, expressive or to talk openly about things. Was that really discouraged in your home growing up? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't about being a girl because um, my, my father actually treated me uh, unusually, I think maybe for the time and and uh, uh, beautifully, you know, he, he encouraged my confidence from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, if he was going to shingle the roof, I was too. And You describe your childhood as sort of like Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> yes, without the pinafores yeah. uh, or the prairie. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, it was like a throwback to another another century. We always had kerosene lanterns ready, for example. But uh, but it wasn't about being a girl. It was about being um self-effacing. I don't need anything. I don't want anything to be incredibly, incredibly uh, polite, not to have anyone have to put anything out for you. And so it was to the point where if someone was trying to hand me a candy, it was no trouble. They already were had it in their hand. I had to say, no, 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 thank you. I'm not hungry. Um, because it was not polite to actually want something or need something. So that was the message. So to not express your needs, basically. Um, right. and, and I guess I got mixed up with the church story. It was when you were three years old that you decided, in fact, in fact, announced you were going to be an actress. Yes. I announced to my parents that that was going to be my job. I don't even know how I knew people had jobs at three years old. Or, and I certainly hadn't been to the movies unless they took us to some animated Disney movie or something. But... That's what I said. I'm going to be. I must have seen, you know, I, I know I watch television. Uh, I have photos of me watching watching television. But I somehow perceived that people were pretending to do things. And I wanted to do that. And, and obviously, you had to have a lot of confidence. And that expressed your needs. So your parents did give you confidence. So what what's the difference of, of expressing your wants versus expressing your ambition? Well, you know, something you just said made me think, uh, uh, maybe somehow I had figured out or unconsciously realized that if I was a character, the character wouldn't have to repress her feelings. I can't, we'd need a psychologist to figure this out. But, uh, but the thing is, I knew I wanted to be on film. I didn't want to be in theater. Like I didn't, there was nothing about me that craved people looking at me. I, I'm sure that I craved approval, you know, as big, big approval as I could possibly get. But um, I think it was the opportunity to be, to try on different personas, to be somebody else, to be somebody who's not quiet and shy and, you know, your childhood was really idyllic, but you do write about a neighbor, Mr. Teller, who um, who molested you, basically, Gina, which yeah. made me think, gosh, it's just so commonplace um, for this to happen. Yeah. And it was a really interesting story because he went from sort of hugging you to touching you inappropriately to mm -hmm. the point you kind of experienced basically showed your mom what he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm curious to know sort of for you to 
explain what her reaction was to that. Right, right. Well, the thing is, I was 10 and I didn't know, I'd never heard the term privates. I, I didn't even know there was anything between my legs that meant anything that was significant. And so when he started touching me there, I didn't think anything about, I mean, I didn't think there was, this is terribly wrong. This shouldn't be happening. I know, you know, nobody should be touching that area. And so when I told my mom about it, I just showed her on her what he was doing to me. And she went through the ceiling and sailed down the middle of the road to his house. I came out to the sidewalk and watched her disappear into his, uh, his house. And then when she came back, she said, um, you're never to bring the paper inside his house again. You leave it down at the bottom of the stairs. Okay, but, but didn't say because <laughs> what happened was not your fault or, or whatever. Um, so then I knew there's, there are horrible secrets in the world that you're just gonna stumble on and not know what they are and it could be you doing something really wrong, you know, but I just didn't know. And what did you think about your mom's reaction? And what would you have done if this had happened to your daughter? Well, right. I mean, right. Um, I think my mom had a great reaction. She, uh, you know, she was very angry. She flew up the street. She confronted him immediately, told him what's what, this is what's going to happen. And that all was great. Um, you know, I, I probably wish that she would have explained to me what, what happened or why that was wrong or what I should do in the future or, you know, tell me immediately if anybody touches X, Y, Z and, uh, uh, and all that. But, but, uh, but yeah, I would have got the police involved and, uh, you know, immediately. And, uh, and, but it's just a different time now. I, I was going to say, I think our, our vocabulary and our understanding of these situations, just they weren't fully formed back then. I remember my sister walking up the street and some man called her over to the car and I think she was 12 and exposed himself to her. And I think, you know, I don't think my mom, my mom was really upset about it. I think, I don't think she called the police, but I think, you know, it was sort of just like, there are a lot of perverts out there and people weren't necessarily held to account when they behaved a certain way as they are now. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you remember if your mom said, don't approach a car if they call you over or anything like that? Oh yeah. She did. She said that. Yeah, I think she did. And don't talk to strangers and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, so. we, we now, we always do that now, you know, you, you start from the beginning. Nobody gets to touch you if you don't want them to, and you know, all that stuff. So it's it's very different. You grew up in, in Wareham, am I pronouncing it correctly? Right. Massachusetts. Yeah. And then after college, you decided that you were going to New York to pursue a modeling career. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and obviously, you're very tall. How tall are you, Gina? Six feet. Six feet. So did you you really saw modeling as a vehicle to get into the movie business or to become an actress right well yes this was my scheme uh because i knew 
this I was in I was a theater major and and most everybody wanted to do theater but I knew I wanted to do films or TV or something like that be on screen uh, but nobody ever I never asked anybody nobody ever said you know if you want to do that you should actually go to LA instead everybody was going to New York so I went with them and and then I'm like how am I going to get uh, uh, in movies but I planned this actually when I was still in college that I saw that. Christy Brinkley and Lauren Hutton and some other, you know, right. supermodels were getting cast in movies. And I thought, okay, so the way I'll do this is I will become a model and then they'll just hire me. Uh, because obviously I thought it's so much easier to become a supermodel than an actor. So, uh, but it actually worked out. It actually worked out. Well, talk about how you made the leap. Right, right. And and I never became a supermodel, by the way. I was only on the cover of New Jersey Monthly. So I, I didn't take off in that way. But they were casting Tootsie in New York, shooting in New York, and had the idea, let's call model agencies to see if they have any models who can also act, because it, it called for the character to be physically attractive, let's say. Uh, and uh, And so they said, yeah, yeah, we have one and sent me for the uh, audition. And it was just a, you know, a casting assistant with a video camera and some, you know, office. And uh, and they said, wear a bathing suit under your clothes because if you audition well, they are gonna wanna see your you in a bathing suit. And, uh, cause the, it, the character called for being in her underwear at certain points in the movie. Right. So, um, so I went to the audition, I, I read for it. She didn't say, let's see you in your bathing suit. So I just completely forgot. And what are the odds I'm going to get a cast in a movie with Dustin Hoffman as my first audition, you know? So, um, so I forgot all about it. And I was going to Paris to do the uh, collections, the runway shows for the first time. I was all excited about that. And I was there and evidently Sidney Pollack, the director saw my video and said, Hey, I like her. Where's her bathing suit? Oh, we forgot to, get any pictures of her in a bit. Well, get her back. No, she's in Europe. Well, do they have it? Does her agent have any pictures of her in a bathing suit? And fortunately, I had been in a Victoria's Secret catalog. So they sent hot dog. They sent those photos over where, you know, windblown, airbrushed, perfectly lit, you know, instead of standing in a sad, you know, midtown office. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I got the part. Which is pretty amazing. I mean, what was that experience like working with, with Dustin Hoffman and Jessica Lange and just that incredible cast? And also, um, who did uh, who did I love also uh, in that movie who has MS? Uh, she's blonde. Terry Gar. Terry Gar, who was such such a great comedic actress. So, I mean, yes. did you were you pinching yourself being with all these people? Oh, I totally, I couldn't believe it. Although I sort of did believe it because it's what I thought was gonna happen. So it's very, it was a very strange uh, time, but, um, and Sidney Pollack, this incredible director, you know, for my first job, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better. I would have done anything, um, but um, yeah, it was amazing, amazing, amazing. And the funny thing about it was, you know, it's my first, I, I, I'd never been on a movie set. I didn't know anything, but I was too embarrassed about that to ask anybody anything about how things go. 
on a movie set. So uh, I didn't know, I didn't ever ask anything. And people didn't tell me things either. They didn't volunteer, for example, that you only come on the days when you're in a scene. <laughs> so I assumed everybody was going to come every day, all day. And so I did. <laughs> and then nobody ever said, by the way, you know, you, you don't have to be here. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever said anything about it. Um, every day I got my chair and put it right next to Sidney Pollack and sat next to him all day. And it never occurred to me that, wait, the other actors are sitting over there and probably I shouldn't be bothering the director while we're shooting, but... Uh, but he let you sit next to him and watch him work, it, which must have been invaluable. Invaluable. And he never said a thing. He called me sunshine and um, was very respectful from the beginning, very respectful. And so, you know, I had this incredible experience that I never would have if I'd asked a question here and there. You write about the fact that that Dustin Hoffman gave you some good advice about how to deal with lecherous men on the set. And what did he tell you? So all day long, he was giving me advice because he was sure that I was going to have this career. And uh, and so one time he said, now, uh, never sleep with your co-star, by the way. You should never do that. It's just it messes things up. Don't do it. So here's what you say if your co-star propositions you. You say, oh, thank you. You're very attractive. I would love to. But I don't want to ruin the sexual tension between us. And uh, I was like, OK, so I, I squirreled that away. And, and you uh, used uh, it later with Jack Nicholson. Actually, and what happened? Jack Nicholson. It's too long to explain why this happened, but Jack Nicholson called me um, and uh, after Tootsie and said, and I, I, uh, you know, I had got this message, call back Jack Nicholson. Oh my God, incredible. So I'm Mr. Nicholson. Hello, this is Gina Davis, the model. And uh, he said, hey, Gina, when's it going to happen? And I was like, oh my God. But I instantly knew, well, first of all, I should have, you know, what is it going to be about? It's going to be about that. But uh, uh, I said, I know what to say. Oh, my God. For once in my life, I know exactly what to say. And I said, well, Mr. Nicholson, Jack, um, I have a feeling that we are going to be working together someday. And I would hate to have ruined the sexual tension between us. <laughs> what did he say? He said, oh, man, who told you to say that? Because <laughs> he just somehow knew that someone had told me to say that. But it got me out of the out of the situation. When we come back, Thelma, Louise and a life changing friendship with Susan Sarandon. I bet you're smart. Yeah. And you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. 
NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You obviously have been in some iconic films. A League of Their Own is a close second, but the most iconic one is obviously Thelma and Louise. Tell me a little bit about that experience and that moment in time, Gina, because I I really see your life and career juxtaposed against sort of the feminist movement writ large. And I'm curious why that movie made such a huge impression on the national psyche, if you will. Well, you know, the the reaction when it came up, none of us predicted uh, that it was even going to be seen or successful. You know, it seemed like a small budget movie and uh, maybe people won't like the ending or something, but it exploded on the scene, you know, cover of Time magazine uh, almost instantly and and all that. And uh, and the heading was on the, the the title on the cover of the magazine was why Thelma and Louise strikes a nerve. Uh, not why people like it or anything. And, and there were two negative essays in that issue about how it, this was a horrible development because we're showing that women have to resort to violence and la, 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 whatever. The big thing that I noticed was the difference in if people recognized me once the movie came out, because I was used to people saying, oh, I like the flyer, I like Beetlejuice or whatever, and being you know very nice and that's all they needed was to tell me that. And and suddenly people were saying, oh, my God, I have to tell you what this movie meant to me. This changed my life. This is how many times I saw it. This is who I saw it with. And, you know, they really wanted to share with me how important the experience was. And and I realized that in a profound way that we give women so few opportunities to come out of a movie feeling inspired and empowered by the female characters. Where are you going? Fresno. We've been seeing you all over the place. Why don't you take off those shades? I want to see your eyes. Yeah, I've been seeing you too. Yeah, we think you have really bad manners. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, where do you get off behaving like that with women you don't even know? Huh? Huh? How'd you feel if somebody did that to your mother? Or your sister? Or your wife? Huh? What are you talking about? You know good and damn well what I'm talking about. I mean, really? That business with your tongue? What is that? That is disgusting. And oh my God, that other shit But it really mom. did I mean, strike a nerve. There was definitely a segment of the population who thought it was a very bad thing. Um, and uh, actually, Entertainment Weekly made a chart. They thought that was funny, you know, that people were saying it's so violent. And they made a chart comparing. Thelma and Louise and Lethal Weapon. So just just let's just look at two two violent movies and compare. And <laughs> it was like uh, the Thelma and Louise number of bullets fired, something like seven. Uh, and, uh, and for Lethal Weapon, they said, well, it's pro- approximately three hundred and fifty, but you can't really 
single out machine gun bullets uh, successfully. And, and, and I mean, it was just the carnage. <laughs> Deaths, three, including themselves, you know, so anyway. It uh, just, you know, I think that it did have these incredibly strong female leads and you and Susan Sarandon and talk about women with eight finding themselves and claiming agency, right? Right. And I think it was such a powerful message for for women everywhere that you were taking control of your your right. destiny, basically, right. to the very end. Right. Um, and you also became lifelong friends with Susan Sarandon, who was sort of the the total antithesis of dying of politeness. <laughs> and what did you learn from watching Susan and the way she moved in the world that you kind of absorbed and took with you, Gina? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I think she affected my life, changed my life more than anyone else has. And uh, and it was it was watching the way she moved through the world. I mean, it was from, you know, a few minutes into having met her, <laughs> uh, I knew what she was, I saw what she was like, and I was like, how have I never been exposed to a woman who who lives like this, uh, who doesn't start everything she says with, I don't know what you'll think, this is probably a bad idea, but what would you think if, I mean, if you don't like it, we don't have to, you know, which is the only way, it was the only way I existed was talking like that. And uh, we were going through the script, right, the first day I met her with Ridley Scott, and I swear it was like on page one that she said, um, you know, my first line here, I, I think we should just cut it. And then I was like, well, but that's how we're starting. And, uh, and I looked at Ridley and he was like, yeah, sure, why not? No, we don't need that. Uh, and uh, it sounds crazy, but, uh, you know, I had never experienced a woman who talks like that, nor seen a reaction like Ridley's where he doesn't think, hey, how dare you just say things? <laughs> Did you find that empowering for yourself when it came to your your work and your future roles that you could use your voice and you didn't have to be so polite? Yeah, it really, really impacted my life tremendously. Now, I can't say I just jumped to that. <laughs> now right. that I have voices, I'm going to be that. Um, but I feel like the goal of my life became to be able to react to something or behave in the way I really wanted to, in the way I really felt, instead of massaging everything into what will the other person think or can I get away with this or how can I twist this around to be unobjectionable, you know? Um, so. Uh, that's that's like became my life goal, and I, I, that's what I'm I'm still working on, and getting much much better thanks to uh, thanks to that early education. After the break, how Gina took control of her career after forty. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet. There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I have to ask you about when your career stalled, and it was sort of you were 40 years old, and... Gosh, I think it would be so hard to be an actor, Gina, and just worry all the time. And are you in? Are you out? Are you up? Are you down? What's next? You know, what's in the future? And and I'm curious if that period of your life was difficult to to process and also to deal with. Right. Well, yes. I mean, I had heard about this phenomenon that supposedly happened that when you get to 40 for women, the jobs start to fall away. But first of all, I thought Meryl Streep and, and Jessica Lang and those people were going to fix it before I got to 40. And failing that, I would be the exception. And uh, and but then it turned out that I was profoundly not the exception. And, you know, I point out in the book that it pretty much happens to happened to all my peers and it just happens to everybody mostly it, it really is a true phenomenon that that happens and uh uh so i was uh i was shocked by that and and i had always taken time to i was very picky always about what i wanted to say yes to and partly because i had played such incredible roles so i was happy to wait a year until the next good thing came along but to suddenly have to wait a year, two years, three years for the next good thing to come along was uh, was stunning. Do you think that that is still the case in Hollywood, Gina? Or do you think, um, have you seen that situation improve at all? No, no, I haven't. Um, in fact, some of our research at my institute showed that 20% uh, of characters in films are 50 or over. And of that, only 5% of characters 50 and over are women. So it's, it's happening. It's full on still there. So Meryl, Meryl Streep and, and actresses like that are clearly the exception, not the rule. Right, right, right. Uh, I talked to, a, when I was first starting my institute, someone recommended that I speak to a media uh, personality and uh, talk tell her about it and, and maybe she'll want to cover it. And, uh, and I, and I, so I, I got in touch with her and I explained that, um, that uh, there were far fewer female characters where right then I was um, analyzing television shows and movies made for kids. And I said, there's far fewer female characters in movies made for kids. And she said, no, 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 that's not true. There's Meryl Streep works all the time. And I was like, 
is she in kids TV? Is it, and plus, what does that have to do with anything? I'm talking about data. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty shocking, all that. And and you did start the Institute. But before you did that in your 40s, that's when you decided you wanted to have children and you became uh, you got into archery and almost made the Olympic team. Right. I mean, well, where did that come from? Oh, uh, you know, um, it happened that I had had to learn some skills that I didn't have in real life for movies. Like the first one was learning baseball for League of Their Own. And that's when I found out for the first time at 35 that I was physically coordinated and athletic, actually. And it was so stunning that um, it really changed the way I thought about myself and my body. And then, you know, Cutthroat Island, I'm learning yeah. uh, sword fighting. And then uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, I'm learning Taekwondo and ice skating and all this other stuff. And so then I decided I wanted to see if I could take up a sport in real life and do well at it, not just a movie version of whatever it was, and saw archery on TV and thought, oh, that is so beautiful. I wonder if I could be good at that. And I take everything too far. So, you know, I became obsessed and... Uh, and then I made it to the Olympic trials two and a half years later. And that's unbelievable. But getting back to this disappointment at roles drying up when you were 40 really ignited this curiosity in you about women and how they're portrayed in media. And I remember it was watching cartoons with your daughter, I believe, that spurred you on to want to change things. Can you tell that story? Yes, it was. Yes, it wasn't roles drying up uh, at all, really, that um, spurred me on to want to create a research institute. It was my daughter. Uh, when she was a toddler, I decided, hey, let's, I'll show her some preschool shows. You know, great idea. That'll be fun. And I have her sitting on my lap. And the very first thing we watched within five minutes or 10 minutes, I was like, wait, how many, how many female characters are on this? show and it was one and with lots of other male characters and I thought wait a minute and then I saw it everywhere in movies and tv and videos and everything for kids and seeing it through her eyes made me realize wait a minute we are teaching kids to have gender bias from minute one by showing them imbalanced worlds where boys are more plentiful and do most of the interesting things and uh, and there's one girl, you know, usually. And so I, I, I didn't intend to <laughs> take it to the extremes that I have, but I couldn't find anybody in Hollywood who noticed what I noticed. Every single person I talked to said, that's not true anymore. No, that's 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 been fixed. And Meryl and Streep being, is still working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meryl Streep's still working. And also they would name a movie with one female character as proof that gender inequality had been fixed. So I thought, okay, so this is completely unconscious. And if I get the data, I could take it directly to them because I kind of could get meetings with people and tell them something they don't know. And because they make stuff for kids, they must love kids. So this could actually change things. And it happens it worked. <laughs> I mean, I am so impressed by your commitment to this, Gina, because this wasn't something 
that you sort of dabbled in. I mean, you have been focused on this for a very long time and you have taken a very research oriented approach, a very data driven approach by working with USC and by really providing the information and the evidence of gender bias. So executives and people couldn't couldn't really come up with an excuse for why they were doing certain things. Just give our listeners a bit of insight into some of the things you did and have done in terms of showing how few speaking parts there are for women, how few women-centric roles there are. And will you just kind of tell us briefly some of the work you did and some of the changes that were implemented because of your work? Right, right. Well, part of my approach to this from the beginning was I'm going to go privately to, because this is unconscious. There's no point in busting them. You didn't want to shame anyone. And there's no reason to get the public involved, even. You know, I mean, the other way to go might have been educate the populace and have them demand whatever. But I thought, I know I can go in private to them. I just like, nobody even has to know that I'm doing it. So the research from the beginning was numbers and quantity and quality. Uh, so we always looked at the occupations, the aspirations and those kinds of things of the characters. And we also looked at, um, from the beginning, looked at uh, people of color as well and presented it to them. And, and people sometimes ask me, you know, did anybody have resistance or, and, uh, and never, we, we always people were so shocked because they were so sure they were doing right by girls. They're so shocked and want to do better and have, I mean, we've made tremendous strides, but now we have, uh, we have six categories of underrepresentation that we, that we look at women and people of color and uh, people over 50, uh, people with large body types, people with disabilities, LGBTQIA. And uh, and so we, we look at all of it, as well as what are their occupations, what are their goals, what are their aspirations? So we can give a very complete picture to people when they when they want to know, you know, about their project. And how have you affected change? Because I want you to brag for a minute about how this behind the scenes kind of quiet work you've done has really made a difference. And what I always admire about you, Gina, is you did this before it was kind of, I don't want to say cool, but before more people uh, were kind of jumping into this. And I want to say jumping on the bandwagon because it's such an important bandwagon to jump on. But before people were really interested in these issues, you were in there fighting the good fight and you did make some progress. Yes. I mean, significant progress. So brag for a minute about what people did when you pointed out these things. Yeah, well, so um, two years ago, we did a update on our um, on our research for children's television shows. In other words, shows made for kids, uh, 11 and under, and found that for the first time ever, we have reached gender parity in the lead characters. Uh, equal male and field, it was so different from what it was when we began. And then uh, last year, we updated our uh, family film research and found that the same thing had happened in family films, that now we'd reached parity between male and female lead characters, which was you know, also incredibly different. And then uh, 
we now have found out that in uh, children's TV shows, the world that is the fictitious world that is created is now 50-50 also, which is, you know, has, has never happened. So, I mean, those are some of our biggest goals. Uh, uh, and I'm talking about gender. Uh, right. And uh, and what about behind the behind the camera? You know, female directors, it seems that doors are opening much more frequently, but not enough for female directors. And right. um, do you see some some changes in that department as not only as a result of your work, but as a result of, I think, a much greater awareness of this issue just uniformly. Right, right. Well, it's certainly a big change that women are directing some very big budget movies. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, that's, that's different. I mean, I think, I think Penny Marshall with League of Their Own directed the, the highest grossing, was the highest grossing movie for a female director. But, uh, but that's different. But really, the numbers have not moved that much. And the and the and the reason is, uh, I think, because it's conscious bias. People have known within the industry. People have known for decades exactly what the numbers are. So giving them the research will not make them uh, say, "What? What? I had no idea I wasn't hiring female directors. Let me now change everything." That it it, it wouldn't work because everybody already knew. So it had to be I like you couldn't use the technique that I had because it wasn't necessarily unconscious, I think. But but things are definitely improving. Disney has really um, done an incredible job of not only making more movies than anybody else starring a female character, but uh, encouraging and, and uh, developing female directors. Um, but but, it, but it, it is you're right. It is getting better, but it's not anywhere near uh, even remotely getting close to equal. Yeah. Speaking of a league of their own, did you see the remake on Amazon? Well, yes. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you can call it a remake. Maybe it's a rethink or something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and it's, it's this year is the thirtieth anniversary of League of Their Own, and, and now there's this um, there's this series. Um, there's still the peaches, but. They're not our characters. They're some different characters. And uh, and from what I've read about the the motivation for this was Penny Marshall. At, at, I mean, at that time, time was different. And also um, Penny said, I don't have enough real estate to cover these topics. Um, there there weren't any uh, gay characters in, in the original movie. There was one very short moment that looked at um, black women not being allowed to be on the teams, and and they really wanted to explore those aspects of it in a in a in a much bigger way and a much more modern way, really. Much more modern way, yeah. But but telling the the story through you know this this period uh, period piece. Yeah. Did you watch it? I saw. I've seen the first. Uh, maybe uh, three episodes. And, yeah. and what did you think? Was it a strange experience for you to watch it or really fascinating? It was strange and fascinating. It was, yeah, it was. Cause it was like, this looks so much like what, you know, what we did. They really captured, you know, the era again. And there's all these, um, I forget what they're called, but little nods to uh, the original film, you know, like the lead character in the TV show is also a catcher. She's not like 
my character at all, but she's also a catcher. And uh, and she runs for the train to get, you know, to go to Wrigley Field. And um, and one of the characters catches a ball barehanded. Right. So nods, nods, I guess, to uh, to the original film. Meanwhile, in addition to this book, you've got an exciting thing happening on screen because Zoe Kravitz, her directorial debut is called Pussy Island. And um, you are in that film, right? So tell me about that and how that came to be. Um, I got, uh, you know, the request, would I would I uh, like to be in this movie? And um, and uh, and I loved the script. I was so shocked by the title. It's, uh, I, I shouldn't be, but I mean, I, I'm shocked that people just say it. You know, I think 10 years ago, people would have put P, asterisk, 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 Y, <laughs> or whatever, but... Um, but I love the script and I, I really loved the character because I get to be quite funny in, in this role. I play uh, Channing Tatum's assistant and for various reasons, he needs an assistant and I am the worst assistant ever. I'm, I'm, I fall in the pool, I'm dropping things, I can't keep things straight and and it's all funny but then later you find out why i'm like that so it's not just that i am like that anyway is it uh, a thriller is it a comedy what is a it a it's thriller a well that's exciting and what else are you up to in addition to to being in p island and, <laughs> and and writing your book um anything else on the horizon no no not, i mean not, no not in the immediate um in the immediate future, uh, I have to be very careful what I get interested in because whatever it is, I will want to go to the Olympics in it. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, you know, carefully choosing uh, choosing what I what I next get involved in. But I'm, you know, developing some other movies and TV shows and things like that. Yeah, well, um, I love every time I see you on the screen, big or small. And okay. and Gina, I'm as I said a few times already. It's so wonderful, the work you've done uh, promoting women and other kind of marginalized people and making sure that they have, that they're front and center because you and I have talked about it many times, how critically important representation is for for society and yeah. for kind of unleashing the ambitions of everyone who's watching because, mm -hmm. you know, seeing mm -hmm. what is possible on the screen really does translate, I think, into people's everyday lives. It really does. You you, you need to see yourself reflected uh, in in the popular culture. I mean, that's, that's where you get information about what's important. And if you don't see somebody like yourself, you're like, okay, I get it. I guess I'm not important to anybody. And um, so it's very important to, to change that, yes. Gina Davis's memoir is called Dying of Politeness, and it's out now. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at katiecouric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, 
visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.